Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigrant Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Dr. Ramani Devazula is a licensed clinical psychologist, best-selling author, professor of psychology and distinguished international speaker who joins me on the podcast to unpick an extremely complex topic that she has spent much of her career analyzing and understanding narcissism the term narcissist is banded around a lot but is perhaps one of the most overused yet misunderstood words when it comes to how we describe and understand people broadly speaking We may be using it as shorthand to describe people we find to be selfish, difficult, cruel, thoughtless, and anything else we come up against that rattles our own sense of self. However, narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder are two very different things entirely. One is a diagnosed personality disorder where various criteria need to be met in order to qualify, and narcissism is a spectrum of behaviour. If you're already feeling a little lost in the weeds, then don't worry. This is exactly why I asked Dr. Ramani to join me on the show. I wasn't really aware about narcissism in all its forms until a few years ago. I just just assumed that narcissists were glaringly obvious members of society that I probably wouldn't come into contact with anyway during my daily life. Extremely wealthy, cutthroat, ambitious, self-involved, vain, privileged... I thought a narcissist showed up in the world like Gordon Gecko from Wall Street, as made famous by Michael Douglas. What I didn't understand until I started to investigate it myself based on my own experiences is that narcissists hide in plain sight. They come in many forms, can lure you in in a number of ways and can do real damage while you're under their spell. And I'm using inverted commas there, listeners, to say spell. But uh, don't worry, that's exactly why Dr. Ramani is here and she gives context to that during our conversation. This is my first time chatting to Dr. Ramani and hopefully not my last, but given that the topic is extremely broad, complex and nuanced, we do cover a lot of ground rather than deep dive into any specific corner of this discussion. But during our conversation, Dr. Ramani explains why narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder are not one and the same, why using narcissist as a label is too broad, the genesis of narcissism, is it innate or is it learned, the damage that can be done emotionally and physically to someone by a narcissist, the types of people who are more likely to get caught in a narcissist trap, how narcissism is spreading because society today rewards the qualities of narcissism and offers no penalty for it at all, how to deal with a narcissist and whether you should ever confront them and call out their behaviour, whether a narcissist ever gets their comeuppance, how to set boundaries and protect yourself from being pulled towards narcissistic people, the role of low self-esteem and the narcissistic entanglement one might find themselves in, and so much more. Clearly, 
There is a lot to unpack here, but since I discovered Dr. Ramani, I found great comfort in her videos on YouTube, which are packed with helpful guidance if you have experienced this kind of thing and bear the emotional scars to prove it. So those links will be in the show notes, but we do cover a lot of ground, as I say, in this conversation. When it comes to helping people cope, heal from and understand narcissism, I honestly can't think of a better guest to share with you. So it is my absolute honor to welcome Dr. Ramani onto The Emma Gunn Show. Welcome to The Emma Gunn Show, Dr. Ramani. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you today? I am so well and so delighted to be speaking to you uh, because I wanted, I've wanted to unpick this particular topic on the podcast for a long time, but it is so complex that it is so easy to get lost in the weeds. And so we need the right person <laughs> to dissect it all. And the topic that we are going to be dissecting as much as possible in an hour is narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder, because the two are not the same thing, are they? They are not the same thing. And that's probably one of the biggest confusions that people face is that there can be a heated conversation and someone is dealing with someone who's very difficult or mean or really lacks empathy or is very entitled or arrogant. And they spent enough time with them to say, this is a pattern. I think they have narcissistic personality disorder. And people say, you can't diagnose someone. That would be like me meeting someone. And I don't know, they're having all kinds of symptoms. And I say, oh, you have cancer or you have, I don't know, some sort of Ill, other illness. I understand where that, where the friction comes from. Now, narcissistic personality disorder is in fact a, a diagnosis that appears in the DSM-5, which is sort of the diagnostic manual of mental illnesses. And that, and in order to get any diagnosis in the DSM, narcissistic personality disorder, any diagnosis, not only do you have to meet the criteria of a laundry list of symptoms, lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, envy of other people, um, uh, not really having, not, not having a capacity for real intimacy with other people, very reliant on admiration and validation and constantly seeking out all the stuff we know to be about narcissism. In addition, in order to get this diagnosis, a person also has to have what we call subjective distress meaning that they feel uncomfortable. So think of a depressed person, right? Depressed people have a lot of subjective distress. Oh my God, I'm so sad, I'm miserable, I can't get out of bed. Or they have to have something we call social and occupational impairment, meaning their relationships are getting messed up or their job is getting messed up and they need to recognize that, right? At some level, they're like, oh, I'm missing work or whatever. But unfortunately with narcissistic personality styles, we sort of reward them. They tend to make more money than other people. They tend to do really well in the dating world. So they often don't think there's anything wrong. And because we have that added level, I agree that a lot of people walking out in the world who are narcissistic may not have narcissistic personality disorder. Narcissism by itself is a personality trait or personality style characterized by that usual list, lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, um, uh, being very controlling, being very superficial, validation and admiration seeking the whole, that whole list of qualities. But, and it characterizes that person across situations, across people, it's who they are. Is it causing them social and occupational impairment? Are they upset about it? Doesn't matter. All we know is that other people are bothered. And Emma, where it gets tricky is that we are not allowed to really sort of think about 
oh, someone else is angry about this person. Someone else is hurt by this person. So we're going to, in other words, if you are behaving badly towards me, and it was only me saying, Emma's terrible, Emma's mean, Emma's awful. A mental health practitioner won't diagnose you on the basis of the misery you're causing me. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And this is where narcissism is in such an interesting, confusing space. I firmly believe they should get rid of the diagnosis. I don't think it gets us anything. This is, it's an untreat, relatively untreatable condition. There's not much good evidence of treatments that work across large numbers of people. So I think that the diagnosis has no point and it can, it really muddies the water on what's a big, bigger problem. And people waste their time having these arguments. Oh, don't diagnose people you've never met. I'm like, oh my gosh, here you are splitting hairs. And this person is frustrated. They're using the right word. They really are. Okay. So it's not a diagnosis. Mm. And I think what you've said also previously, which just make, made me howl with laughter because it's just so true, is that you don't really get narcissists offering themselves up for diagnosis, for professional diagnosis. No, no, no. In fact, people ask me, do narcissistic people ever come to therapy? Actually, they come a lot more than you would think. The reason they come to therapy is not, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm causing so many people so much misery through my lack of empathy. No, 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 no. The reason they're coming into therapy is things in their life aren't going the way they want. They didn't get the promotion they wanted. Somebody left a relationship with them. A spouse demanded that they get into therapy. They're the subject of a lawsuit. Usually they come into therapy because they feel victimized. Mm -hmm. They feel that the world is out to get them. And they want to, in essence, really kind of come and complain about it or say, why is everyone against me? You know, it's, it's very what we call persecutory, the sense that everyone's out to get them. That's what ultimately brings them into therapy, but not you know, not because of some, you know, not some, some sort of self-awareness that I'm causing harm to other people. And I want to stop this. I think one of the things that I noticed when I started researching this particular topic is that a lot of people come to uh, narcissism, researching it because they feel as though they have experienced it. Uh, they have been on the receiving end. So they might often say, I was caught in an empath narcissist dynamic and I am now on the road to recovery. And I think what I find uh, so complicated, and I'm sure listeners who maybe have dabbled may think this too, is that I always had a, a I always had an idea of what I thought a narcissist looked like. And broadly speaking, it was Gordon Gecko. Great. That's a great template. I mean, it's so I, I, I absolutely, I couldn't love, I already love you. I couldn't love you more for using a, like a sort of a great 1980s reference. Cause honestly, he was one of the original, really great cinematic kinds of, you know, but you're absolutely right. Gordon Gecko is a perfect narcissist, but if you and I even sat here for an hour, we'd come up with 500 in movies and film. Right. But you're right. But that's only one type and they're not all like him. And so there can be people who actually seem like victims who need your help or that. So, but it doesn't mean that the underlying narcissism isn't there. It's just that what you think a narcissist might look like. And what I really love about your channel and listeners, obviously I will be putting the link to Dr. Ramani's YouTube and books, et cetera, in here, but it's almost as if we, we need a guide, like a first aid guide or a, like you teach kids to cross the road. You almost need a guide of how to avoid these personality types or, or these red flags or how to see these red flags so that you don't get sucked into these really quite toxic and draining dynamics that can really limit people. What, you know, what, what I want to say to that, Emma, is that I actually think, objectively speaking, people know what the red flags are. 
they know what arrogance is. They know that somebody's interrupting them. They know that somebody's, I don't know, treating a server in a restaurant badly. They know that it's not okay to be late. People know the red flags, right? It, the, the red flags are almost as much of a problem as the justifications we make. Mm-hmm. We give second chances. We give the benefit of the doubt. We say, oh gosh, it means I sort of feel like I'm being harsh if I'm cutting someone out you know, for doing two things wrong or something like that. It's we stop ourselves. I think people's instincts are actually good. The combination of our discomfort with setting boundaries, and then you put that against all the enablers out there. So let's say you do finally say, "Mm, this person twice has been totally distracted and has no interest in me or keeps interrupting me or seems very insensitive to other people. I think I'm going to end this. And then your friend says, oh, come on now, just give them a chance. You've been trying to date for a while and this one looks great on paper. Think of how many people got their instincts right and then a third party weighed in and then filled the seat of doubt. I think people are gaslighted not only by the narcissist, but by themselves and by third parties. So you really have to have a very, I mean, a sense of fortitude to say, I'm not doing this almost to a point where you have to be able to tolerate people saying, boy, you're really cold or you're really dismissive. And so I think that so many people actually, and I I always say that there's five things that keep a narcissistic relationship in place, why people don't leave. Foremost is hope. People think these folks are going to change. Maybe when the exams are done, maybe when the bills get paid, maybe when they get the promotion, maybe when we move to the new house, it's not going to change. The second is fear. People say, well, at least I know this devil. I'm afraid of either ending up alone or not being, or the next person will be worse, or maybe this is only as good as it gets. There's guilt. If I leave this person, especially as you just described, Emma, I've talked about this idea of some narcissistic people being very victimized and sort of sad, like they're they're anxious and they they don't seem actually well put together. People feel guilty leaving someone like that. There's also pity. They sort of feel sorry for them. Like in some ways, this is a preening four-year-old. I feel bad for that. And finally, it's lack of information. People don't fully get what this is. So the combination of all that means people see the red flags, but they, they don't think that they ignore them. I think they try to justify them. Do you think narcissism is on the rise just because you mentioned earlier, we reward many of the traits. So do you think more, more and more people are, are becoming, is it innate or is it something that we develop over time? I think that it's not innate. So it's made. Does that make sense? You know, I think that, and I've written about this, talked about this, this idea that there's probably a temperament, a temperamental style, which is almost like an inborn kind of personality that puts people at risk for turning into a narcissistic personality. But depending on what their early environment is like, even despite that temperament, they won't necessarily, they're just at greater risk. But even if we take that piece out, this is something that's made. It has to do with a child's early environment, what they're exposed to, things that are in the parent's control, even things that are out of the parent's control. But it really does have to do with, with sort of social development. But the challenge is this, is that I think that there are people kind of that are on the cusp, you know, like that they they could go one way or another if they had the right supports or came into the right kind of world. I do think that some of this in at least some of the more superficial types of narcissism, the attention seeking, the validation seeking, the obsession with material success, 
the idea that my life has to look better than your life. Look at me, look at me. That kind of superficial narcissism definitely seems to be on the rise. And I, I, I really pin a lot of that to social media. You know, I do think that we're now, so social media really started in earnest around the mid 2000s, right? Mm-hmm. So we're about in five years about to see the first group of people entering adulthood who were born into a world where social media existed from the day they were born, meaning their parents were already interacting with it. It will be interesting to see what we see with that generation. Are they, because they're more accustomed to social media from an early age, maybe it doesn't have the same impacts for all of us. It came into our lives when we were already adults or you know, in, in young adulthood. But I do think it seems to be between social media, between what we value in the world, between how world leaders behave, corporate leaders behave, celebrities, athletes, anybody who's in sort of a public realm, everyone is behaving so badly these days. And they're so successful that it almost feels like this behavior is rewarded. So somebody might be thinking, if I'm going to be successful, I need to act like that. It's not natural for a lot of people. So a lot of people say, I can't act like that. And if that's the only way to make money, then I'm just going to not have a lot of money because it's not who I am. Right. And so, um, but I do unfortunately think there's people who are kind of, like I said, on the cusp and because of the way the world is, they're pushed more into cultivating their narcissistic side, but it is, it is something that develops through childhood into adulthood and people are not born this way. There are no narcissistic babies or somebody could argue all babies are narcissistic, but because they're completely selfish, (laughs) but that's not, I mean, it's not how it works. We don't think about it, a person coming into the world born this way. It's funny that you say that listeners who are longtime listeners will know that I've talked about getting into journalism and how I was always told from a very young age, journalism is so competitive. It's really cutthroat. Someone's always going to be trying to get trying to get your byline, et cetera, et cetera. So without any experience of the world of journalism, I went into it thinking I had to be hard edged and watch my back, which breeds more of the same behavior. Right. Exactly. And I think as you you astutely pointed out, different industries pull for narcissism more. I think highly competitive industries, media, journalism, performing in any way, music, acting, performing, but even in banking, finance, law, medicine, high levels of academia. I mean, there are many very competitive career spaces. The more competitive the career space, the more likely that the narcissistic people are the ones to get ahead because they really are more willing to resort to more competitive, dirty tricks to get ahead because getting ahead is how they get validation. And for them, validation is the air that they breathe. So they will go to incredible lengths to get that validation. Um, One of the things that happened to me, and this is obviously a show about you, but just to put some context, is I came out of a long-term friendship And at the end of it, a friend said to me, I think you need to read this article. And it was a big article about the empath narcissist dynamic. And every morning for about six months, I would wake up and it would be the first thing I would read because it would give me some sort of comfort. And then via therapy and more research, I realized that this isn't something that happened to me. It's something that I played a part in. I have to take my accountability for that. (laughs) Oh, Dr. Ramani has given me a very interesting uh, maybe nod there. But what I found really interesting is I then went on my pursuit of finding more information. And you only have to go to your YouTube channel, actually, and look at the comments underneath the videos. I read a lot of pain in those comments from people who feel as though they have been essentially drained, completely drained by a narcissist dynamic, and they identify as the empath. 
So I think that the reason I was nodding my head with that maybe is that most survivors of these relationships blame themselves. This was me. I stayed too long. This must have been my fault. I didn't try hard enough. I failed at this. Um, I fell for this. I'm foolish. Everything from feeling silly to feeling um, that they didn't do this well enough, that they could have been different, or simply that I'm not enough, right? A narcissistic person in a relationship more often than not abuses the other person, right? It's usually psychological or emotional abuse. What's so challenging is the way we talk about relationships and relationship theories and even how it's done in couples therapy. You're absolutely right. There is this assumption that both people bear some level of responsibility. My belief, and this is my belief, is that in any relationship, when somebody is manipulative or abusive, I'm not going to talk about the shared responsibility issue. I'm just not. You know, there, there's no excuse for abuse. And if somebody is remaining in a relationship, it's really hard for me to view them as complicit. I view them as confused. I think they may be bringing in histories earlier in their life where maybe they did get the message, you're not enough, or this is as good as it gets, or you don't deserve more, or they spent a childhood justifying a parent's behavior. So in adulthood, they justify that same toxic behavior. It's really hard for me to view that person as also being responsible for what's happening. That's like saying to someone, well, your face was in the way and that's why you got punched. Are they responsible for standing? No. And so I, I think that so much of my focus, and I truly believe that for a lot of people, probably 60 to 70% of survivors of these relationships, good knowledge and information is actually enough for them either, if not to get out, to set very different boundaries and have very different expectations. This isn't my fault. This is a personality style. It has nothing to do with me. There's nothing I could do to change it. And above all else, it's not going to change. And when people are armed with that and can really hear it, then they really can say, okay, this isn't my fault. However, I have to stay, I don't know, because we have children or, or you know, I, I, I can't afford to go out on my own or my culture, or people say, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. So you know, that, that empath narcissist combination, I, I say that there are certain qualities that people can have or histories people have that place them at greater risk of a narcissistic person preying on them. And those include things like being very overly empathic, being very positive, being very forgiving, to having a tendency to want to rescue or fix people coming from a family system where you had narcissistic parents. Ironically, the flip side is coming from a very, very happy family system puts you at risk too. And in addition, there are things like many times narcissistic people will come into someone's life at a time of transition. So a person, maybe they've moved to a new city, maybe they're going through a tough time at work, maybe they recently came out of a relationship, maybe they're having financial or other problems, maybe there was a recently a loss. Something has thrown a person off balance and that's when the narcissist comes into their life. So their instincts aren't as sharp. If I had a dollar for everyone who said to me, when I met this person, we had a very quick relationship, courtship, marriage, whatever. At that time, I was lost because I had just left a terrible job. I had just moved to a new city. I wanted someone to take care of me because my last partner was so you know, um, indifferent and boom there they, and then they got into this new thing and they, they will say like, it's almost as though I had like a curtain over my face. I wasn't able to see the situation clearly. And then it's too late. So I do think people who are very empathic, who are empaths, they tend to 
they tend to make allowances. They tend to give the benefit of the doubt. They tend to try to see things from the narcissistic person's perspective. And they tend to try to almost overdo, overgive. And that has to do with that thing we call the trauma bond. The trauma bond is, an, is sort of an ancient cycle people get stuck in where the relationships are carried by, characterized by volatility, lots of ups and downs, get together, break up, get together, break up. And the trauma bonded person becomes everything to the narcissistic person. They become their personal assistant, their chef, their life coach, their sex partner, their best friend, their driver, their butler, anything you can imagine. That's what a trauma bonded relationship is. That person doing everything to try to serve the narcissist. So is low self-esteem um, a good place to start in terms of, is that a characteristic of uh, quite a lot of people? I know you mentioned the five types, but of people who can, who can be honey trapped into this narcissistic relationship? Again, I'm gonna say yes and no to that. And I'll tell you why. I have seen just as many people actually with excellent self-esteem who have been pulled into these relationships who are, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use a heteronormative framework for a moment, but women who are successful, top of their game, doing really well professionally, very independent, and they meet it because again, many narcissistic folks look great on paper. They're often successful in their own right. They're often quite attractive, charming, charismatic, confident, all the things that are considered to be desirable. And a lot of people kind of get lost in that sort of, we're going to be a power couple. We're going to take on the world. You'll support me and I'll support you and we'll raise kids together and we're going to be so great together. So I've actually met people who actually had excellent self-esteem going into these relationships and saw all these aspirational qualities that the narcissistic person had as very much consistent with the larger worldview they had for themselves and a partner and a life with a partner. And then slowly but surely, because all narcissistic relationships are really a grooming process, the narcissistic person takes a person apart one, you know, one limb at a time, like they slowly but surely take apart their psyches so that this person who started with really intact and excellent self-esteem is left completely confused, dazed, devaluing themselves, don't know which way is up, they feel helpless. So I've actually seen people go into these relationships and lose their self-esteem as a function of being in these relationships. My goodness. Um, does a narcissist know what they're doing? Is it a, a sort of a clinical, I'm going to tear this person apart piece by piece? Probably not. I mean, it's, you know, what you're describing is more sadistic, right? I'm going to tear this person apart and I'm going to enjoy it. Or even almost psychopathic, I am going to tear this person apart. The narcissistic person is very driven by a sense of insecurity and their own feelings of inadequacy. Those feelings of insecurity and inadequacy are pushed very much down in the narcissistic person's psyche. They almost exist at an unconscious subconscious level. But when something happens in their lives that bring it up, a failure at work, uh, somebody getting something they want and they don't get to get it, somebody turning down their advances, that inadequacy and insecurity starts bubbling up into their consciousness. It makes them uncomfortable and they tend to react with rage. But in that same way, they try to keep any sources away from them. Anything that could bring up that insecurity, they try to keep it out, which is why they have these sort of suits of armor, the arrogance, the entitlement, the grandiosity, the constant need for validation. In essence, they're trying to put themselves off on a pedestal so they don't have to deal with those monsters of inadequacy and insecurity. So everything they do 
they're like a closed system in a way. Everything they do is to protect themselves from their insecurity and inadequacy. They're not even thinking about the other person, except that the other person either represents a threat or it represents something they can get something from. So I, it's, everything's transactional in that way. Either you're going to hurt me, so I need to hurt you first, or I need something from you and I'm going to keep taking it until I don't need it anymore. And then like an empty cup, I'm going to throw it in the trash. That's why people feel so disposable to narcissistic people. So to them, everything is about what they need, what they want. They're not even thinking. That's why I have to tell people they don't really care about you. They don't care about anybody. It's not you. They just don't care. They only care about themselves. I'm now thinking about uh, various people that I've come across in my life. And I'm, I am thinking about because there is this undertone of um, vulnerability and mm-hmm. of being insecure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've definitely seen people in real life act out. And there are sort of two reactions that I've noticed. There are the people who kind of shut them down and disable they're just a whatever and dismiss them with a name. Or there'll be the voices who say, but come on, we know that this comes from a place of insecurity. It's not really mm-hmm. meant. Um, not that there's a right answer. Oh, there is a right answer. Okay, what is the right answer? <laughs> okay, <clears throat> I don't care what they meant. They hurt you. Mm. I don't. It's like being careless with a gun. Do you know? I don't care that they were, they didn't know that the gun, you're picking up a gun. Guns hurt people. I don't, I don't care that you didn't know there was a bullet in it. I didn't mm-hmm. care that you didn't know the safety wasn't on. I, you picked up a gun. Someone was going to get hurt. You say things, people get hurt. I don't care that it's your insecurity. I don't care that it's your inadequacy. Go get help before you start spending time with people. But this excuse that people make, oh, but it comes from a place of insecurity. Abuse is abuse. There is no excuse. So I have just outed myself as an enabler. <laughs> yes, you have, my dear. I sensed it. I don't care. Listen, I have worked with clients because people often say, oh, narcissistic people sometimes have a rough start. Childhoods that might have actually been characterized by trauma, neglect, coldness, or indifference by caregivers. As a therapist, I have worked with hundreds, probably even thousands of clients at this point in my career, hundreds. And I will say I have worked with clients with some of the most extraordinary trauma histories you could imagine, cruelty that no child should ever experience to tell you they are the kindest, warmest, loveliest human beings I have ever met. I don't buy it. And if a person is walking through the world and is a member of the community, and because we know narcissistic people know how to turn it on for the people they need something from, they meet the big boss at work, they've got the hearty handshake. How are you? Oh, was there anything I can do to help you? And then as soon as they're behind closed doors at home, can scream at their partner, they know the difference. They turn that behavior on and off. So for them to use the excuse of, oh, woe is me, I'm insecure, I've had this tough life. Well, then why didn't you do that with the boss? Because you know the difference. And something about me is giving you permission because you feel safe here, because you feel it's okay, because you feel like you can bully me, unacceptable. And so that we have to stop this cycle of, oh, well, they're insecure. You're not the therapist. You're not. If you were their therapist, my job to sit in a room with a narcissistic person and do that, I can call them out. I can say, come on, that's your insecurity talking. But I'm also able to say, and what you said to that person was cruel or cold or unacceptable. Sometimes the patient doesn't show back up. That's their problem. But I can, that's my job as a therapist. They're not my friends. But if you're in a relationship with someone, it's not your job to babysit 
their insecurity. So how do you call out someone whose behavior looks like narcissism and is affecting other people? You don't call them out. You don't. There is absolutely no point to calling out a narcissistic person. It's the biggest mistake everybody makes. They watch the videos, they read the books, they're like, aha, now I have the map. Now I have the framework. I'm going to let them know I've got them all figured out. It's literally the biggest mistake you could ever make. Once you recognize that that other person's behavior really ascribes to a pattern, consistent lack of empathy or the gaslighting and the manipulation, however it all adds up in that case, now you know what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So what have I just said? It's not going to change. You have to have realistic expectations. Relationships with them are very transactional and and sort of utilitarian. They're going to use you for what they use you for. They can put a mask on and off. It's not you. It's not personal. They would treat anybody in this role in the same way. As long as you've got something to offer, maybe they'll be nice some days, not others. Again, realistic expectations. And armed with that knowledge, you can then set boundaries, disengage. I uh, uh, Someone I once worked with, and I've run with the term because I think it was brilliant, do something I call firewalling at this point. Firewalling, when you think about what a firewall is on your computer, it's a way to pr- stop you from sending out sensitive information. And it's a way for com- to protect your computer from malware and hackers and all of that, right? We all need firewalls on ourselves. And when you're dealing with a narcissist, it means you don't share your vulnerabilities. You don't share your insights. You don't share your inner world because they're just going to minimize it. And you have boundaries and you're aware that anything they're saying to Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You is coming from their place of insecurity and you don't personalize it, but you also don't engage it and you find your supports elsewhere. You cultivate other human relationships with healthy people who are capable of respect and compassion and mutuality and reciprocity. Some people will be listening and saying, well, then that's not a relationship anymore. It never was. You tricked yourself into thinking it once was. Now here's the truth is in front of you. And that's the point at which people sometimes say, I don't want to be in this. Okay, that's your decision. And some people will say, I can't leave this. I would rather if people did have to stay, they stayed realistically. And it's, yeah, it's a pretty empty relationship going forward. It's very superficial. Pretty much all you can talk about is the weather or some, something silly like, oh, look, the banana spoiled or something like that. I'm talking superficial, boring, uninteresting. But if you talk about anything else, it's more likely to become manipulative and abusive. So you don't want that. And in fact, I often share with people I talk with something I call the deep technique. I say, if you're, work, if you're talking with a narcissist, don't defend yourself. Don't really engage with them. Don't try to explain yourself and don't personalize their behavior. And if you use that as sort of a basic framework, they don't get under your skin as much. It doesn't feel good. And it is a pretty empty and inane relationship, but you're less likely to get hurt. But the one thing you never want to do is call them out. I think that's the thing. It's the not engaging. It's the not getting honey trapped back in and but that doesn't mean that you can't interact with those people ever like if they walk into a room Mm -hmm. you don't have to get up and leave there is a way of actually living in harmony with these people but I guess it comes (laughs) comes down to boundaries 
I think I'd call it superficial harmony. So where this often plays out most pointedly is, for example, if it's a narcissistic person in your family of origin or your extended family, so somebody you may not see with as much regularity or it's somebody in the workplace, that kind of thing. It's a lot harder in an intimate relationship, obviously, you know, to really only talk about spoiled bananas and if it's going to rain today. But, you know, some people have to sort of make a horse race of it. And they're able to because they've created other sources of support. They've got good friends or good colleagues mm -hmm. or close family members or something. So I think that, again, it's a superficial harmony. And I totally agree with you, Emma. And this is what I tell people is that people say, oh, no, this person's a narcissist. I have to end the relationship. I say, you don't have to end anything. This is a very personal choice. I'm telling you what the territory is going forward. And so you don't, you, you do what feels right. But at this point, now, you know what the landscape is. And the problem with narcissistic relationships is people often try to justify them and say, no, 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 this will get better. And I'll say, no, I'm not letting you do that. It's not going to get better. And they'll say, but what if the next person gets the better version of them? And I say, there is no other version of them. The next person is going to have your story. Maybe some pieces of it will be different. Maybe it'll last longer or shorter. But if anybody had the opportunity to talk with everyone the narcissist has been with before you or after you, everyone's going to share a pretty similar story. Interesting, the blow up. So this brings me to another thing, uh, whether the narcissist, when you have been through that pain with them, whether they get their comeuppance. Will karma bite them? Will they pay karmically for what they have done to you emotionally? Everybody asks, asks <laughs> me that. Do narcissists get karma? And I say, truly, as, as raised Hindu, is like, you know, this karma's complicated. And the answer to that is I think all narcissists get their comeuppance or their karma because they're stuck being them. It's actually a terrible way to have to go through life, right? They miss all of the joys of human interaction. They miss all the little simple things. Like they won't spend half an hour, like, I don't know, watching hummingbirds buzz around or, you know, watching a sunset. They'll be too worried about oh, I got to get the Instagram picture in the sunset and I got to get this. And do we have this reservation? And do we this? And do... They're so concerned with all this superficial posturing that they miss a lot of the beauty of life. Not to mention to be a narcissistic person means you're forever wondering who's out to get you. And I think everyone is looking at you badly. And it's there's so much anxiety in a way that it, it, everything feels like a threat. The world feels like a constant threat to them, even though they would never admit to it. So maybe that's the comeuppance that they have to, they, they're stuck being them and you actually get to move into a different future. They lost you. You're a wonderful, loving, warm person. And they didn't even have the good sense to figure out how to cultivate a relationship with a good person. To me, that's comeuppance. But I know that's not what people mean. Pe mean. People are like, tell me the next person's going to cheat on them or tell me they're going to go to jail or whatever. Yes and no. I mean, I, I've got to tell you, I've seen nar some narcissistic people go all the way to the finish line of life, relatively unscathed, no matter how many people they hurt. Now, I have to say in the world we live in with more communication capacity, social media, the way people can find people, email them, whatever, information gets shared a lot more too. I think the narcissistic folks can't hide the way they once did. So if they sort of are leaving this wake of harm behind them, there's a lot more ways for people to sort of find out. But 
because narcissistic people keep testing the limits, right? In the workplace is a great example. Mm -hmm. They'll push the limits. They don't get caught. So they'll push them farther the next time, push them farther the next time people will enable them. And then at some point they push them one step too far. Somebody catches them. And then there's a recognition that this was a pattern of behavior. So every so often we will see the mighty fall. And let's face it, that is such a good feeling when (laughs) we see those people fall. And so it's, um, you know, I, 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 my hope for all survivors of narcissistic relationships is that they can get to what I consider the pinnacle of healing, which is actually indifference. People mm-hmm. say, oh, it must be forgiveness. I'm like, hell no. It's not, about, it's not forgiveness. It is indifference. So there will be a day when people wake up and they'll say, you know what? I don't care if they're alive. I don't care if they're dead. I don't care if they won the lottery. I don't care if they're remarried. I don't care if they're in love. I don't care if they're miserable. I don't care. And that is the day that I'm like, we got you out of the woods. So then karma becomes less of an issue, doesn't it? People are almost Mm -hmm. like, I just don't care. They went to jail. Great. They didn't go to jail. Great. They just bought another waterfront mansion with all the money they stole. Great. I don't care. I'm just happy. I don't need to live in that house with them. Oh, so it's not the, the balm on this bad feeling is not to think kind thoughts towards them. And I hope that they're doing well. I wish them nothing but happiness. That's all nonsense. It's just don't even, don't even think about them. I have said to clients for decades now, please stop telling this person who's done so much harm to you. I wish you well. I wish you all the best. I hope things are, you don't mean that. Don't, don't put false words out there. You hope that they get publicly humiliated. Now you don't need to say that out loud, but stop wishing them well. Okay. Save your wishes for people who deserve them. So this whole, I, again, I don't buy this. And I actually think it's not good for people because what it does is it sets that trauma bonded space up again. It leaves people saying, I just wish them well. And it, you know what it makes you vulnerable to another one coming in the door. I hate to say it, but to be narcissist resistant, you do have to be a little bit cynical and you have to say, no, I don't wish them well. They are a harmful person and they're going to harm other people. And we don't have Yelp for people. So we can't put reviews out there. It's like zero stars, raging narcissists, stay away because we will get slander and defamation suits. So we can do that with a restaurant. We cannot do that with a person where it would actually be useful. Okay. I understand why, but there's this don't, don't wish them well. It's just a waste of your wish. I'm not saying wishes are finite, but talk about karma. I think there's something about wishing someone well when you don't really, that's not so good. And so, yeah, you don't have to think like that. Well, it's performative, isn't it? And I'm saying this as someone who's done it. It's performative to say, I'm such a good person. I've, I've risen above it when the truth is that's not actually hundred percent true. I totally agree with you that it's performative and it's really part of the enablers universe. Like, yeah, we're all just going to get along and forgive. In fact, I tell most survivors, I don't believe in forgiveness. If somebody's done you this wrong and harmed you and changed you, you may choose not to forgive that. And that's okay. Some people find that, okay, I hope I get to the point of indifference one day. I don't forgive it. This person changed the course of my life. This person harmed my children. This person harmed my livelihood. Why would I possibly forgive that? The whole belief is that, oh, well, then you're letting go of something yourself. I'm not saying to hold on to it. I'm not saying to ruminate about it, but you forgiveness is a divine state. And if you never get there, it's okay. If you never wish them well, it's okay. 
it's merely getting to indifference. So it's no longer taking up prime real estate in your mind. Mm. That to me is the win. Yeah. How do you know if, because we, I know we talked about this at the top of the show, but just to sort of reiterate narcissism and saying someone's a narcissist is something that just gets said when someone's basically being a jerk and it gets, it gets really, really overused. How do you know if you have been in that dynamic or if you're just in a friendship where someone's a bit of a bitch or someone's just inconsiderate? So all narcissists are jerks, but not all jerks are narcissists. Okay. So that's a great place to begin with that is what we look for with a personality style, especially a personality style that's harmful and antagonistic, like narcissism is something, the technical words would be things like pervasiveness and stability, right? This person is always like this across a variety of situations and with a variety of people, meaning that it's not, it's not happening like every so often that usually they're a very, they're, they're perfectly fine person. I don't know that they, when they come home from a visit with their parent or when they um, worked a double shift or something, it only comes out. Then you're like, okay, this actually makes sense that Mm. it, it really ties to something. So that's one thing we're looking for. Narcissism at its core is a series of patterns, which I sort of hinted at at the beginning of the show, lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, arrogance, superficiality, validation, and admiration seeking, often a need to control, control the narrative, control other people, or what we call a reactive sensitivity to criticism or feedback. So they can dish it out to other people, but as soon as other people give them feedback, they have a very ferocious um, reaction. There's a real volatility there's a dysregulation. So they constantly need other people to reassure them. And they're very prone to quick bouts of rage at times because they don't get their way. It's it's like spoiled child phenomenon. There's a lot, lot of egocentricity, a lot of envy. So all of that together makes narcissism. I will tell you to me, if I had to pick the one piece of this, that's the ringer. It's the lack of empathy because everything sort of falls from that, right? If you have empathy for others, you won't behave in an entitled way. You won't feel that you should be at the head of the queue. You won't believe that you're the one who should get special treatment because you'll be aware of others. If you have empathy, you won't walk in like a preening, you know, arrogant fool. So empathy to me is the, is the real issue. And if you're dealing with somebody who consistently doesn't have empathy, then you're probably dealing with somebody who has a narcissistic style. It goes just beyond the jerky kind of, I don't know, somebody who's acting like an overblown 40 year old adolescent sort of, sort of thing, but they, they do have empathy more often than not, probably not a narcissist. Is jerkiness, I guess, sort of short bursts of just being a bit of a, a bit of a jerk. When I think of jerkiness and it's not embedded in the larger narcissistic structure, I usually think of somebody who's a bit more emotionally immature or emotionally stunted. I really think that, and and don't get me wrong, narcissistic people are always emotionally stunted, but again, not all emotionally stunted people are narcissistic. And I think jerks are just really, again, they they tend to be very adolescent, very immature, um, almost stuck. But interestingly, they can often keep it together. They can be decent enough parents. They can be decent enough colleagues or friends. They just have these immature moments. And um, certainly dynamics like alcohol can make jerks worse jerks. So I'll often say also, is this, you know, is, is this a heavily linked pattern to something else? Like they're wonderful, lovely person. And then only you're seeing this under the condition of alcohol and substances. It still doesn't make it okay. 
But as long as it's just jerkiness, which tends to be hijacking the conversation, talking over other people, being a know-it-all. If those are the only patterns you're seeing, almost like the annoying guy on the bar stool in the pub, that's more of a jerk than a narcissist. I love you for saying pub, knowing that you are. I had to, I, you know what? I, I'm going to beat you culturally. With <laughs> knowing that you're on a Zoom to London. I love that. Um, you have said, which I really wanted to unpick because I thought this was really interesting in your TED talk, actually, which is fantastic. And obviously, listeners, the links will be in the show notes to that. But you said that pushing back on narcissism is a human rights issue. And you said it with such conviction. Like this obviously in all of your years in practice and all of the people that you've worked with, this is obviously something you are hugely passionate about. Is narcissism actually a, an epidemic? Is it a problem that we now need to really push back against? To frame it as a human rights issue, it's like, I think we need to choose the right battle. I actually don't think we're going to eradicate narcissism because we reward it too much. I don't think we're going to eradicate narcissism because if anything, parents are becoming more distracted rather than less distracted I, and, and less more than anything else, less supported. The reason I call it a human rights issue is that there was actually a study that came out earlier this year from researchers at Ohio State University, and they showed over 450 studies that they reviewed was one of the most strong, consistent findings I've seen in the behavioral science literature. Narcissism was so clearly linked to aggression and violence that narcissism to me is the core of all domestic abuse, of gender-based violence, of, un, uh, of um, diplomatic failure, of how countries run themselves. I think that narcissistic leaders are responsible for tremendous human rights violations, income inequalities, all of that. It comes down to our willingness to believe that people like this have our best interests at heart when they don't. Mm. And by not having proper penalties. Because again, I don't think we're going to stop people from engaging in these abuses. I actually think that we need to see them as what they are, people who are not going to stop doing these things and have the penalties in place that then keep everyone else safe. So I do think it's a human rights issue. I think it, it affects how commerce is done. I think it, it, the fact that so few people hold most of the wealth in the world, that's a reflection of our, our, our enabling of narcissism. It's not okay. And the world is falling apart pretty darn quickly as a result of that. Cause you'll notice like spoiled children, they aren't sharing that money with anybody else. Right. And that's what a narcissist would do. They'd keep everything for themselves. That's what we're, that's where we're at in the world. And so I think that the idea of eradicating narcissism is a fool's errand. I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's been around since there were human beings. And so the bigger issue is that we understand it, but that people understand it in all places that they, they start teaching kids about it. I, I wanted to talk to middle school and high school students about this. And you know what I was told? Oh, Romani, that topic is so negative. Do you see what I'm saying? So the opportunity to talk about this to people at an age where they can actually make informed choices on the basis of this information is younger people. Mm -hmm. By the time someone's 45 years old and has either been destroyed at work or in a marriage or something like that, it's still important, but they've already incurred the harm. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could actually have real conversations about this earlier in a person's life? And yet the pushback is, oh gosh, that seems like a really bleak view of human nature. I, I understand it's bleak, but what's more bleak 
is watching really good people be taken down by these patterns because they're not being told what they are. Emma, I cannot tell you how many times I have sat in sessions with people who are sobbing, good, solid, smart people who said, nobody ever told me what this is. Nobody ever explained this to me. I walked around feeling like there was something wrong with me for decades. Why didn't anyone tell me? And, and sometimes with tears in my eyes, I'd say, I, because these systems almost want to keep this sort of happy, overly happy view of human nature, which isn't true. I don't think this is negative. I think actually it teaches us to cultivate and respect and cherish the healthy relationships we have with compassionate people. And there's a wonderful literature on compassionate leadership. Leaders don't have to be cruel. Leaders don't have to be unkind. Leaders don't have to lack empathy. And in fact, there's great research showing that compassionate, empathic leaders get results. Mm. It's, um, yeah, the, the thing about teaching children really how to navigate. I mean, is it about teaching them how to spot red flags or is it giving them a sense of self? Like, where would you even begin? Like if they said, right, Ramani, do it. Where's your syllabus? Where would you start? I, I would really start on, on valuing the whole child. If I, when I, if I were to line up all the narcissists and line up all the people who have been harmed by narcissists, the one thing that will, they will actually have in common is that in their lives, they were never really valued for who they are. Mm -hmm. Too many children are valued for what they are. Oh, you got the soccer goal. That's my winner. That's my kid. Oh, you've, you've in your country, you've, you've done great on your A-levels. I'm so proud of you, you know, versus meeting every child where they're at. And instead of being so focused on how they do in sport and how they do in performance and how they do in school, who they are as people to give boys and men in particular permission to talk about their emotions without being spoken badly of, without feeling that they're going to be made fun of for doing that. I would create much more rigor around curricula that deal with emotion, having the chance to talk about emotion and feeling. But again, to, to have that child feel like they're being celebrated for their whole selves, that they are enough, that their gifts to the world, every human being's gifts to the world are unique and, and really start there. But I will tell you this, I am a mother. And I remember my child once saying that she was being told she had to play with a certain child in the playground. And I was very upset about that. And because I thought to myself, the child was, I said, why didn't you want to play? And she explained, and the child was actually sort of playing in a way that was sort of violating her boundaries. She's, she, at that time, wanted to play alone. And I think solitude and kids, it, you know, as long as it's not something that's unhealthy, like it's good, like they want to play in their own. And I said, sweetie, you always have permission to set those boundaries the, any way you want. Like you don't have to like anyone, everyone. The message she was getting is you have to like everyone. We don't like everyone as adults. And yet children are told you've got to figure out a way to like all 20 of these children in your class. No, I think what we can teach is compassion and kindness. I said, you will never treat a person cruelly, not on my watch, but you don't have to play with and you don't have to like everyone. And I feel like it, we're all going to like everyone is the message kids get. So they don't learn to be discerning. So we'll, basically the one thing that we all know that we're going to experience in life is emotions, a whole mm -hmm. spectrum of them. And yet actually we don't ever get any kind of education, how to process them, how to understand mm -hmm. them, how to maybe 
navigate the world around them if you have a bad one. So it's a good point, Ramani. Mm -hmm. That's the big, I mean, and I think what ends up happening is that the only emotion we allow boys and men to have is anger. You know, instead of saying sadness is fine, vulnerability is fine, anxiety is fine. It's all again, emotions are like they're just part of our day. They're like the weather, you know, and and I do think that there's so much profundity if we gave permission to that. But the problem is, even if the schools get it right, 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 you may be thrusting them back into family environments where those children are shamed or worse if they do show emotion. It's a big, mm. it's a big issue, Emma. It's not something that's going to, to get solved easily is so what's, what's so unfortunate, which is why I feel like instead of focusing on addressing the narcissistic folks, for me, my career has been, how do I work with the people who are on the receiving side of this? So that less harm can come to them because the narcissism piece is never going to end. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I had a very interesting question from a listener when I said I was going to be talking about narcissism on the show. And they said that they were now in the process of recovery and were um, trying to set boundaries. And their question is essentially, how do I do that? How do I become more selfish without turning into a narcissist myself? So let's, let's right, right out of the gate, let's stop calling setting boundaries as selfish, right? Instead, you know, I would say to someone, when you go into the car and you put on a seatbelt, do you consider that selfish? No, you consider it self-protective. Because yes, there's a law, I get that. But even without the law, it's self-protective because we know that if you wear a seatbelt, you're far, far less likely to get injured or harmed. A boundary is like a seatbelt, right? Mm-hmm. It is, it's not selfish, it's self-protective. And so if people can start, the, and, and again, that word selfish, it's a tricky word because it's that idea of putting oneself first. I do think there can be what I call empathic selfishness. And what I mean by that is, there are times you will put yourself first. There really are. I mean, that because if you don't ever do that, you actually would be doing a disservice to everyone around you. But that you take a moment and recognize, ah, by putting my need here, it is going to affect person A, B, C, and D. I can communicate with those people. I can try to offset this with something else. I can prepare people on and on and on. You can be aware as you even do take an action that will put yourself first to let those other people know, I am so aware that this thing I'm about to do is going to affect you. So I actually think setting boundaries is one of the most essential things a human being can learn because Boundary setting is hard for people though, because they feel very guilty. They feel like they don't deserve to, they feel like they're being rude and a boundary. Again, it's like, it's like a fence or leaving your door locked. I mean, most people won't go to sleep at night with their door unlocked. Why? Because they don't want to be harmed. It's, it's the lock on the door. It's the seatbelt in front of you. It's, it's self-protective, but it's also a safety behavior. And once you do it early, it sets a tone, right? What is very difficult is to set a boundary after the fact. Mm. Once you're a year in, two years in, even six months into a relationship, people feel like you're changing the rules. You're moving the goalposts if you set the boundaries after the fact. So I often say to people, have a good sense of what your boundaries are about. Learn to say those no's, but it takes a while. So many of us were socialized, particularly women or anyone who's female identified, honestly, to feel that we don't have the right to set boundaries. Is it selfish? Absolutely not. Actually, it might even be more selfish to not set them and then set them all years down the road. And a person's going to say, wait a minute, like you said it was this way. Now you've changed the rules. You know, that, that almost feels more destabilizing. But I wonder if it's changing because I was chatting to someone the other day and saying that when I started out my career, 
if someone said, can you stay late? I would, I would even mm-hmm. stay late, even if I wasn't asked to, it was just whatever needed to be do, whatever needed to be done. I would almost see it coming and be available for that. Whereas now a woman who's my age, who's working with people who are 10, 15, 20 years younger is saying they have so many boundaries. Like they say, no, they say they need a day off. We never used to do that. No, so is it didn't. changing? It is changing. I think also though, at any given time in terms of that boundary setting and all of that, it's assessing this, the circumstance, right? Media and entertainment is a great example of people recognizing like hustle is rewarded. So maybe me being the first one there or always being on time and making sure everything, I close it out properly will be the thing that advances me. I just need to check in with myself and like, does this feel okay? And as well, are the people around me appreciating this? Oh my goodness, Emma, you are working your work has been extraordinary. Thank you so much for, you know, being such a team player. We'd actually really like, really like to advance you to a new role in this next production. You would then, you know what I'm saying? The behavior being rewarded, mm. the behavior being noticed. And also though, if you said, uh, you know, I, I'd like to put in these extra hours because this weekend I have a family event and the people saying, oh, absolutely. It's also about communicating need. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying that we always get to put a line in the sand the way we want. I understand that piece of it, but I think it's about not only it's not only knowing what we can do, can't do, will do, won't do, but also taking the temperature of the room. That's a big part of boundary setting is being aware of the context that you're in. And I guess from what you're saying as well, it's understanding your emotions well enough, your needs well enough to be Mm -hmm. able to communicate them, to have, to have the vocabulary, to be able to express yourself to the people around you. And we don't, we often, we do not cultivate that at all. And that's something we could cultivate in children. Even you look at school, school is very much everything in order. Everything must be done in this way. You'll eat now, even if you're not hungry, right? Mm, So it's very regimented. And that regimentation actually pulls people away from those instincts of who they are and what they feel. Now I could talk to you for another 10 hours uninterrupted. Absolutely. Listeners will have absolutely got that, but you are, uh, you have patience. So I must. I do. I do. I must let you go, but this has been so wonderful. You have, um, there's been so much in this. I'm sure I'm going to listen to it on slow-mo for about three or four times to really absorb all your brilliant insights. Thank you so much. Um, Listeners, what I would really like for you to do is to subscribe to Dr. Ramani's YouTube channel, because that really is the most incredible resource. If any part of this conversation has uh, piqued your interest or is what relevant to you in any way, that will absolutely be an excellent resource. And I will also put the links to your books and also your social media but honestly Dr Ramani it's been such a pleasure thank you Emma thank you so much it's such a pleasure I hope we can do this again me too thank you so much for listening to that episode of the Emma Gunn show I do hope you enjoyed it I appreciate your time hugely if you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode you have to answer a couple of questions but we cannot wait to see you there come over and join the conversation thank you so much for listening i will see you on the next one 